it's really hard to change the world. It's not hard to change one person's world, you know. Like you can actually change one person's world. You can change six person's world when you build when you build a six bedroomed home. So, and what they say is homelessness is like an overflowing bathtub. And when you come in and you see it overflowing, you start pulling people out of the bathtub. But really, what you want to do is you want to turn the tap off. Yeah. So, how do we turn the tap off and stop people becoming homeless? Welcome to Construction Host. My name is Hudad, and I'll be speaking with influencers in the construction industry. We'll learn more about who they are, what they do, and what's their passion at work and outside work. Remember, if you like this episode, please share it with your friends and subscribe to the channel. Welcome. I have today Kate Mills with me. She's the CEO or CFO, if I'm not wrong. CEO. CEO, okay, of PIF, Property Industry Foundation. So we're going to talk today about her career. How did she get into where she is now? What PIF does? And maybe getting a bit into what she likes to do outside work. Sounds great. My pleasure. Let's get into it from, I guess, very early days if you'd like to share where were you born and where did you grow up okay all right so I was born in the outer Hebrides which when you look at the map of Scotland there's a group of islands off the west coast you've got the inner Hebrides which has got Skye which is a really famous island and then you've got the outer Hebrides which has got Lewis and Harris which is where I'm from I'm from Lewis so I was born there my mother's from there all her family are from there they're all you know white, blue-eyed, red-haired Vikings. Uh, And my father is Ghanaian, so he's from West Africa. So I actually grew up between the Outer Hebrides and West Africa, Ghana, Obwasi. Uh, Obwasi is a little, uh, well, was a little uh, gold mine town, and my father was the doctor there. So I grew up between those two probably till I was about 13, and and then we moved back to the UK. What was kind of the first official job or unofficial job that you were doing? My the... first job was when I was 14. Yes. Uh, we were living on a quite a small island, actually, in the Orkney Islands, which is on the other side of Scotland. Mm-hmm. And my first job, my father was a doctor. He was a doctor on an island. The island had 400 people and he had a surgery. And my first job was to clean his surgery, for which I got $8.00. And I used to clean her surgery on Sunday afternoon and then my mother would come down and she would run her finger over everything to check for dust <laughs> to make sure that I'd done it properly. So that was When you say clean the surgery, thing. was it like what type of surgery? Was so it blood was, blood involved? No, it was a doctor's surgery. Just a general practitioner's okay. surgery. So there was okay. a waiting room, there was a dispensary, okay. there was my father's okay. office, the toilet, that kind of thing. So I used okay. to that was my first job. Working for dad. Okay. Working for dad, that's right. That's right. So, and and um, did you go to school and did you end up in university or no? Just yeah, started? no, I went to school, went to school in a few different places, uh, but ended up going to university. I, I went to two universities. I went to the University of Kent in Canterbury, uh, which is the south of England. And I did an I did an English law and a French law degree. So I did two years in the University of Bordeaux. What? Doing French law. So I'd studied French all my life, and then I, I really wanted to live in France until I went to live in France, and then I didn't want to live in France anymore. Um, but yeah, so I, I loved I loved speaking French. I loved everything about France. 
So I did two years there, really with a view to living in France. But How old were you back then? Uh... So I would have been about 20, right. 20 in France for two years in Bordeaux. Yeah. Big dreams. Back then you wanted to live in France. and I wanted to be live in France and I wanted to be a lawyer. You wanted to so be a lawyer. English law and French law. And I was doing French and I was going to live in France and I was going to be a lawyer. But none of those things happened. <laughs> That's the beauty of life, I guess. So what what happened after? How, how did you end up kind of in Australia? So I, I worked in London for a few years and I became a journalist, which I really loved. And I fell into journalism. It was a complete accident. I, I, I actually did a master's of law in Aberdeen and then I didn't really know what to do next. I didn't want to be a lawyer. So I had a friend of mine lived in London. He offered me a spare room and I went down to London. And London's one of those cities. It's a bit like Sydney. It's like any major city. It actually thrives on fresh young blood, you know, so you come to big cities, big cities really, they want people, you know, they want you basically. So I got a job working as a researcher at this startup magazine and then I became a journalist and I really loved it. And I was a journalist in London for about five, six years and then I went up to Scotland. Uh, anyway, my partner at the time, now husband, PJ Collins, he wanted to go to Australia. He lived in Australia and... When he came back, we were living in Edinburgh together, and he said to me one day, I'm going to apply for my um, skills visa. And I said, yeah, sure, fine, whatever. Not really thinking it through. Did you know anything about Australia back then? No, look, people in Britain don't know much about Australia, to be really honest with you. <laughs> I mean, people know about neighbours and they know about home and way, but, you know, people, I mean, look, to be frank, you know, people in Britain, they don't really think about Australia. It's it's a long way away. That's you right. know, it's not, people don't don't think about it too much. Yeah, you want to see kangaroos and koala, maybe. Yeah, and sunshine and beaches. You know, we've got that kind yeah. of view. Anyway, yeah. he really wanted to come. He wrapped it up in a marriage proposal. So we agreed to travel for a year, go to Australia, check it out, and come back and get married. Oh, so we did that. And then we went back to Australia. And look, I think like a lot of immigrants to Australia, um, you know, you come for two years and then you wake up sort of 10 years later and you've got a job you've got a children, you've got a mortgage and you, you're living in Australia. And I think, that's, I think that's quite common for people mm. who come to Australia. When was it that you came? Do you remember? <sighs> so I came in 2002. And you, you arrived in Sydney directly? Uh, we flew into Perth actually and then we drove from Perth to Sydney. So <laughs> yeah, we drove, we drove across the Nullarbor, we went down Margaret River, you drove to Adelaide. The good thing about it was that for us... We love Adelaide because we hadn't seen anything for like two weeks. And we got right. to Adelaide. We were like, whoa, man, Adelaide, this city rocks, so much going on. So it gave us a very fond memory of Adelaide. And then we drove to Melbourne and we drove to Sydney. What was, what was your like, first impression of Australia, do you remember? So I came into Perth and I'd been in Asia for about two months. And my first impression was about Perth. It was just so clean. It was mm. so clean. You know, we'd been in Asia, you know, like I said, we'd been in Asia for two months. I remember getting to Perth and you know, the pavements were so clean. People weren't wearing shoes, you know, like it was just, mm. it, yeah, it was really amazing. Okay, so came to Sydney. Um, did you kind of find a job directly very fast? Or? Uh, yeah, sort of. I, I started working in journalism um, and I ended up working in financial journalism for a small financial Fin a small financial services publishing company mm -hmm. called Investor Info, which doesn't really exist anymore. So I did some financial journalism, legal journalism, and then I went to Fairfax. And I went to Fairfax, edited CFO magazine, and then I became the editor at BRW Business Review Weekly, which was a fantastic magazine. It was a really, really great job. You know, when you get those jobs that are a really good fit to your talents, you know, like it, was, it fitted my talents absolutely to the T. And I loved that job. Right. 
What would would you like to expand on that a bit more? What what were you doing? You just writing articles for B, BRW or oh, well, no. So I was the editor. So you you know you've got a, we had a team of about twenty journalists across right. um, Sydney and Brisbane, and you've got your art directors and your photographers and all of those things. Uh, it's a weekly magazine, so you're pulling the magazine together. You've got the website as well. Look, in the end, um, it's really an ideas job as much as anything else. The mm-hmm. best thing about it is that when you've got that kind of role. You are at the center of a really big information flow. So you're at the center of an information of flow in terms of um, quantitative data. So you just get a lot of data, a lot of information comes across your desk. But you also get a lot of qualitative data because you get access to a lot of people and you can have, you know, face-to-face conversations with most CEOs in the Australian market and most people in the Australian market, you can have a face-to-face conversation with them. So yeah, you just you just get access to a huge amount of information. And um, I think that just makes your brain grow, you know, getting access to a lot of information. So, mm. yeah. And, and also it's, it's, it's very much an ideas role. So you spend a lot of time talking to people about ideas. Uh, when, you know, I love talking about ideas. So mm. that's like. So how did you end up in Property Industry Foundation then? Well, was that I one s- of those conversations with the CEOs that was an idea? No, spark? not at all. I got I slightly got spat out of journalism because journalism, I'm, I was a print journalist and I looked after a print magazine and journalism mm-hmm. was going through quite a fierce print to digital transformation such as it is. Um, and I sort of got squeezed out, to be honest with you. It's like the tectonic plates shift and you're in the wrong place at the wrong time. Um I didn't really want to work on digital products. I really liked working on on physical products. So I left BRW and I set up my own business called professionalmums.net. And so professionalmums.net was a – I built a database of highly skilled mums and then I sold – highly skilled mums looking to return to work. So these are lawyers, engineers, accountants who left work really because of children and they were looking to return um, and you built the database up really through social media and communications, and then you sold access to the database to large organizations. So you're going to PwC and Clayton Yates and organizations like that who were looking to increase the number of women in their um, in their ranks. So I ran that for about two, three years. I sold it after three years, not for very much money, I might add, but I did sell it. Um, uh, so I sold that. Does it still exists. No, it was bought up by another, a bigger database, if that makes sense. And they absorbed it, and I'm not quite sure what happened to them. There's a lot, there was a lot, and there still is a lot. In, Great idea, i got to say. <laughs> yeah, it was a good idea. It, it, the, the technology investment that it required was really heavy to make mm. it work. There was a lot of investment at that time in the market, and there still is to a certain extent in what I call mum products, you know, products that target mums and products to get mums back into the workplace. So there were the, just as I did that, you know, just as any good idea is a product of its time, you know, just as I did it, lots of other people did it as well. So it required quite a hefty tech spend because it was a technology product at base it was a database mm-hmm. um so i sold that and i started working in uh, as a as the ceo of a not-for-profit for a small um association a finance association um and then actually what happened was my mother died in 2017 and i, I moved back to scotland for six months to nurse my mother as she was dying and i took my children back and we, we lived with them and, you know, like I think after your parents die or any kind of big life event, it really makes you reassess what's going on in your life. And I think I came back and I felt like I was one foot in and one foot out. Like I felt like I wasn't really committed to anything serious. 
uh, both in terms of my sort of personal life and how I live, but also particularly in my work life and career. So I came back and I thought, okay, I want a proper job. Not saying to the people who are listening to this who, who I worked with before, they were all proper jobs. I don't mean it like that. But, you know, I wanted a job you make could... Make a difference. Yeah, make a difference. A job you could really kind of engage in and invest in. So I... Yeah, so I just started looking, basically, for a job that I thought I could get my teeth into. And mm -hmm. um, the Property Industry Foundation came up. Right. When was that and what was your first role, do you remember? I came in as CEO and right. it was at the end of 2018. 2018. So not that long ago. No. Four years ago. Four years ago, yeah. So what is Property Industry Foundation for those people who don't know? And what, what kind of got you interested? Well, okay, so I came back and I was thinking, okay, I want to do something that feels a bit more meaningful. I want, I want a proper full-time job again. I'd been working in part-time roles. I had young children, you know, so I was kind of working part, had my own business, was mm. working part-time as a CEO. So I, I, funnily enough, and I didn't really know what I wanted to do. It wasn't like I looked at the Property Industry Foundation and thought, I want to do that. I didn't know what I wanted to do. So mm. probably spent six months looking for a job. And I pretty much asked everyone I knew of what they thought. You know, I was like, well, you know, I'm looking, for, I'm looking to get back into the market. I want a full-time job. You know, what do you think? And Who could I talk to? So I really kind of used my networks just to talk to lots of people. Um, I looked at the corporate sector because, I mean, you have to look at the corporate sector because it's really well paid and there's good work that you can do in the corporate sector. But I have to say, I probably, and, and also through BRW, I had a lot of exposure to the corporate sector and to sort of business. Mm. Um, but yeah, I, I just remember I, I got to this meeting with this person from an organization that shall remain nameless. And I just thought, I was sort of halfway through doing the sell to him, you know, about looking for a job. And I was like, halfway through, I just thought, oh, God, I don't really want to be here. I don't want to be in this big tower. I don't want to be in this corporate office. I don't want to be here. I don't even know why I'm, you know, going through the motions. Um, so then you look at the you look at the public sector, you look at government sector. Um, so I looked at some government roles or, you know, quasi-public roles. And, and then you look at the social impact sector. You look at the third sector. And so, mm. yeah, and I started looking at the third sector, And I, you know, I just got more and more attracted by the kind of roles that I saw. Mm. Uh, and then the Property Industry Foundation. So why I liked it and why I still like it was, you know, I talk about, so we've got all these problems and all these opportunities in the world, yeah. Mm. Um, and, you, you know, we've got a lot of problems, you know, we've got a lot of things that we need to try and fix. And and there's 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 lots of different methodologies that you can take in terms of how you want to fix a problem. But one of them, and certainly the one I use, is to kind of say to yourself, well, what are your skills? Like, what, what do you bring to the party, basically? You know, what are your skills? And then you've got to kind of understand, think to yourself, well, how much do I understand the ecosystem in which I am operating? You know, so what are my skills? What is the ecosystem in which I'm operating? And where can I best apply my skills to get the best impact? Mm -hmm. You know, I have a saying, which I say with the team all the time, which is, you know, people fall in love with problems in which they have absolutely no expertise. You know, particularly in the social sector, people are drawn to problems. They think, I'd like to fix that. I don't actually know anything about the problem. So I think the attraction for the Property Industry Foundation was the fact that in, in if you look at the, the, the sort of, you know, I said the field map of the problem of youth homelessness, accommodation is part of that. Yeah, it's not the only part, but accommodation is certainly the part of, is certainly one node in that field map. Um, and then you think about the property industry and its skills, you know, in terms of built environment, and then you think it should apply itself, you know, in order to solve some of the accommodation issues for youth homelessness. So uh, It, what the Property Industry Foundation was doing sort of fit, fitted my model of thinking, mm -hmm. you know, in terms of what are your skills, 
What's the ecosystem, and where can you best insert yourself in the problem? So I, yeah, I just I thought you know when I when I first went in for my first interview, you know, I just thought the story of how the foundation had come into being was amazing. You know that you had this whole industry trying to think about youth homelessness that right. had this really tangible product at the end of it. Like it, it had a lot of it ticked it ticked a lot of boxes, if that makes sense. So would you like to get into um, what? For those people who don't know, a lot of people know what is Pay for Property Industry Foundation does. Sure, that okay. Is so unique. In, sure, yeah. okay. So our our tagline, if you like, um, and what I will say to people is, I say the Property Industry Foundation brings the property and construction industry together to have a tangible impact on homeless youth. That's kind of our, our baseline, if you know mm-hmm. what I mean. Um, and the way that the way that um, manifests is through our building program called the Haven Project. So essentially, we seek to increase the supply of transition accommodation that we don't operate, that we operate, that other charities operate. So the way that it typically will work is a charity will come to us, um, and that charity will have land, and that charity has either bought land, most likely it's got land on a long-term lease from local government. Mm-hmm. Occasionally, it's been you know requested. Anyway, the charity has land; it comes to us. And it asks us to build accommodation on it for homeless youth. Uh, a, a classic model just to sort of bring it to life. An organisation will come to us. They want to build a six-bedroom house. Six-bedroom house in Sydney costs around 600000 Probably a bit more now. But anyway, costs around 600000 mm-hmm. Uh Fundraised, fully underwrite that. So if a charity comes to us and says we want to build this house that's going to cost 600000 we're like, great, we've got $600,000. Um, and then we pull together a pro bono team. So we'll get a pro bono architect, a pro bono engineer, a pro bono um, project manager. So we'll put together the consulting team and we'll take it from concept to DA. And then at the same time, we will approach a builder and ask a builder to also build pro bono. Um, and a build, for a builder to pro bono, they're essentially donating their management fee. Mm-hmm. And we also ask them to invite their suppliers to also contribute. Um, and so typically um, we will deliver a house for 50% cash and 50% product. Um, mm. And partners like Dulux are in that as well um, because as we also try and have our own supplier relationships. So what you want to be able to do is you want to be able to go to the builder and say, will you build pro bono? And I have the paint and I have the bricks. You know what I mean? So they don't have to lean too heavily on their on supplier their relationship. Yes. But also if, if suppliers have a direct relationship with us, you know, fundamentally, we think it's more beneficial for the supplier because they'll get the they'll get the promotion, they'll get the introductions, they'll be in the room with us and lots of things. So we think it's quite a simpatico relationship. Uh, we build the house and we pretty much hand it over to the charity. I mean, I always say, look, we build and go, to be honest with you. We're not interested in operating. There are mm-hmm. lots of frontline specialists that are operators. We don't want to be operators. Um, we don't go. I mean, we probably build for only between t- tw- 10 to 12 charities. So there's some charities like Lighthouse in Melbourne where we're just about to start building a six house, the sixth house for them. So, you mm-hmm. know, it's kind of a long-term relationship. Um, but we, do, we we generally focus on the next project um, and we ask every charity to report back to us in terms of occupancy and outcomes of the houses so that we can then report back to our um, donors because uh, we've got about 150 partners that support mm-hmm. us um, in terms of the type of outcomes we're having with the money that they give us. Right. I guess uh, a lot of moving pieces and a lot of people you need to manage um, in the whole process. Is it is that sort of a unique uh, um, service that you provide? Or? I, th- I think there's two things that are unique about it. So there, 
so we're an industry foundation. There's only one other industry foundation in Australia, which is the telecoms industry. It's called TIFF. I was joking about TIFF and TIFF. <laughs> um, so it's not, it's not a very common structure for an industry yes. to come together around one problem. So that's unique in the first place. Um, the way that we um, build, and that, you know, that comes back to what I was saying about that model of the right people being in the right place at the right time. You know, mm-hmm. We can bring all those relationships to bear in order to leverage the cash donation that we get because we have relationships with builders. We have relationships with their suppliers. So that is quite unique. Um, I would say that we are the only, I mean, look, there's lots of charities and there's lots of youth homelessness charities and everyone's sort of, you know, trying to do the right thing. We're, we're probably the only charity that, what I would say, builds in a systematized process. So there mm-hmm. are ch- other charities out there that will do one-off building projects. You know what I mean? Or mm. um, a builder will do a one-off building project for a charity yeah, to operate. But they're the only one that will do it in a systematic way whereby... We've got a process for how we approach people. We've got a process for how we build. We fully underwrite every project. You know, we've got mm-hmm. a pipeline coming up. So we know when we finish this project, there's another project that's going to come online. I mean, to be honest, I, I think, um, look, I guess I think two things. I think what we do is really fantastic. Yeah, like I think you can't underestimate what a home, what a bedroom means to a young person. Most of the young people we're we're dealing with have really been removed from their kinship relationships by the state, you know, Mm -hmm. because they come from a place of conflict. And that conflict's on a spectrum from what you might call light conflict to deep and dark conflict. Um, So, you know, a lot of those young people we're building for, they don't have the kind of home that you may have grown up in and certainly the home that I grew up in as a benchmark. So if you don't have a home as a benchmark, if you don't understand what a home looks like, feels like, you can't build a home. So when people talk about intergenerational poverty and intergenerational homelessness, it really comes from the fact that the start in life that some people get doesn't allow them to have a kind of a benchmark, an idea of where they want to get to. So what we're trying to do in some ways is break that cycle by giving those young people who will stay in the house you know, six months, a year, six days, depends on the type of house, depends on the type of service. But, you know, my favourite is where young people get to stay at least a year, if not more. Um, And then they get that time to reconnect with school, reconnect with with employment, you know, you know, perhaps potentially reconnect with some kin relationships, you know, so they've got a bit of a network outside of the homeless sector. Um, And that year or that year plus really gives them a chance to turn their lives around. But it also means that when they move and they move into the private market and they move, hopefully have relationships and, you know, have a home, they know what it is they're looking for. Yeah, they know what home is and they know what it looks like and they know what it is that they're trying to achieve. Well, as you said, it, I think it's a fantastic uh, initiative you guys are doing. And um, I mean, Julex has been involved in a couple of these projects. and Julex has been an amazing partner, my dad. <laughs> Let's not pretend. No, yeah. that's true. Julex is a really great partner. Julex has provided paint and a painter for every single house yes. that we've done. So it really makes a difference. Um, you guys operate, I've seen, well, in, in Sydney and Melbourne, is that other place? And Brisbane. And Brisbane, So Eastern Seaboard, yeah. Is that based on your relationships? That's how you go? Why not Perth? So, uh, so first of all, I inherited that. So, you know, so I came in, it was in three offices. Um, 
so so I'm not born Australian, you know, I have become Australian. And yeah. one of the things I say about to my friends in Europe about Australia is I say Australia is not a country, it is a continent. Mm. And states are actually separate countries. I say, look, Melbourne, Victoria and um, uh, Sydney, uh, New South Wales, I said that's like France and Germany, basically, both in terms of geography, but also in terms of relationship. Yeah. So, <laughs> so this idea that, you know, Australians in every state, they're all one type of person is, is not at all true. So, you know, I think working across the states is challenging, but rewarding. I mean, mm. it's it's rewarding because um, the synergies are there. So lots of the people that we have good deep partnerships with in Sydney, we have yes. deep partnerships in with Melbourne and with Melbourne and in Brisbane. But it's also challenging because, and you talked about Perth, because the distances for yes. a small organisation make it they make it expensive, to be honest with you, and they make it yeah. difficult. It's not. Re- I don't think it's really easy. And I'm not the only business that would think this to transplant yourself from the east side of Australia to the west side of Australia or vice mm. versa. I think it's I think it's quite a hard job actually. Okay. Well hopefully um there's expansion plan to all part of Australia. Do you have any data that you can share off the off of your mind in terms of how many homes you built in the past four years that you've been and so um so the foundation's been around for 25 years and in that time we've built 234 bedrooms um that doesn't sound like too much but half of them have come in the last five years because last five years we shifted in five years ago we shifted our strategy Mm -hmm. so prior to that the foundation did a lot of things in youth homelessness you know had a lot of different initiatives but then five years ago the decision was if you like to become famous for one thing you know what's the one thing we're going to be known for and we decided we want to be known for building homes Right. So we've really accelerated in terms of bringing um, 105 bedrooms to market in the last four years um, and with a really strong pipeline. Our plan is um, to hit 300 bedrooms by the end of 2025. Um, and each bedroom on average will will look after sort of 3.2 young people a year. So when we've built 300 bedrooms, that will be 1,000 young people every year that will be taking refuge in one of the homes that we've built. Mm. I was in the charity night uh, the other day and there was a gentleman talking that, um, you know, home is part of it, but then then helping them to actually find a job, getting credits and all that is actually, I think, is a very big thing to get back to the community, I guess. I don't know. How, how do you feel about that? How do you feel about hearing some of these feedbacks from people that they live there and now they somebody is it um satisfying you like is it satisfying look it's really satisfying i mean you know often when we open houses i say it's really hard to change the world it's not hard to change one person's world Mm. you know like you can actually change one person's world you can change six person's world when you build when you build a six-bedroomed home so the whole the whole sort of statistics and stories around homelessness are all are often particularly youth homelessness are quite difficult so we often get asked about bringing back people who've been through the homes but you know for a lot of young people who've come from a you know a place of trauma a place of abuse a place of conflict when they manage to get out of it they don't want to look back you know they don't want to kind of they don't want to remember they don't want to be they want to just be an ordinary person Mm. in an ordinary street you know and we talk about that it's really it's about people giving young people the opportunity to live ordinary lives but yeah look I think for me and for the whole team and for a lot of our stakeholders it's the tangible nature of what we do you know the fact that you can go and see the house at the end if you're really lucky we opened a two-bedroom house in Balgala and the young woman who moved in you know was there you know and she was like my god you know you've all done this for me and moving in you know so you get to you get to hear that story and you get to hear from them the impact that it's had on their lives just 
having mm. a safe home, you know, a place where they know they can be there for a year. They're not thinking, oh, you know, I'm going to have to be out in two days. You know, I'm couch surfing. And a lot of people, when they're homeless, it's like they don't look homeless yet because they've got somewhere to sleep. But the thing mm. is, too, there's two things I say about it. It's not safe. Yeah. So you get people, they've got a place to sleep. But they don't want to be home till nine or ten o'clock, yeah, because they don't want to be in the home at night, yeah. They want to wait until people have gone to bed and so that they can get up and they can get to their room, yeah. And then they want to leave at six o'clock in the morning, yeah. So that's, mm. yeah, yeah, they've got a home, but it's not safe or it's not secure, you know, as in yeah. your couch surfing and you're, you know that you can, you've only got two days, you know what I mean? At the end of those two days, you're going to have to move on. You're not really sure where you're going to sleep after those two days. If you're living in that kind of situation, you can't focus at school. You can't keep a job. You can't make relationships. You know, there's all these other things that can't happen because mm. you're not in a safe and secure environment. Yeah. So tell, tell us about um, how someone or a company can be uh, helping you. Uh, I mean, explain how does that work? Is it, do you need to be a company to help PIF? Do you need to be an um, individual? How does yeah, that work? So you can do both. I mean, look, uh, n- number one thing is we are a fundraiser. Yeah, so right. we fundraise so that we can underwrite homes. So, you know, we are looking for people to support us, not just spiritually and morally, as I like to say, but also financially. <laughs> so um, the, op- the, uh, the options are there for individuals either to become sort of a regular giver and for, you know, the 150-odd corp- um organizations that support us normally support us with an annual fee and then we've got so that's that's part of what we do um an annual donation sorry um and then we've got we do fundraising like any other charity yeah Mm. so there's that there's that part of it we've got lots of um what i call volunteer opportunities and they range from being quite a serious volunteer with us to being a sort of ad hoc volunteer so if you're a serious volunteer with us and there's about 100 people that do that you're sitting on one of our committees you're on one of our boards you know what I mean you are you're committing 10 hours you know 10 to 15 to 20 hours a year you're committing to the property industry foundation you know for for no pay basically and you're taking it quite seriously um or you know we've got lots of other um volunteering opportunities we've got events coming up you can come and volunteer on the day on the event um we run a make a house a home program so Mm -hmm. every time we build a home when the builder leaves you know it's just the bare walls and then people come in and get the house ready for people and that's always very satisfying um so there's lots of ways to get involved I mean, probably the key thing I talk to people about in terms of supporting us, because um, when you do an event, people come up afterwards and go, I really, really love you. I really want to support you. And Mm. sometimes it's hard to know exactly where they'll fit in the organization. But I I talk to people always about the concepts of advocacy and powerful conversations. You know, I did an event just last week. And, you know, at the end of it, I said... You know, I said, look, when I finish, 10 of you will come up to me and ask me how you can help. And I said, and I'll be really happy to have those conversations and find something. But I said, the real way you can help is when you leave here tonight, go home and have a powerful conversation about youth homelessness and about the foundation. And when you get into work tomorrow at your first meeting, have a powerful conversation about us. Be an advocate for us. Say... I support the Property Industry Foundation. I think what the property industry is doing around youth homelessness through the foundation is brilliant, you know, and I just wanted to share that with you because that's as powerful as, um, it's not quite as powerful as giving cash, but nearly. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, I guess that's why we're doing the podcast. Now. Yeah, that's right. Powerful, <laughs> try, try powerful sh- conversations here, Dad. Sh- share, the, share the message even uh, more. So tell us some of the projects that is coming up now. Uh, and, I mean, you talked about Haven Home. Uh, do you want to share more about that? 20-something odd bedroom? Sure. So um, so our building program we call the Haven Project. Uh, and we just launched last month well, the project that will be our largest ever project. So mm-hmm. that's uh, 11 units, 19 bedrooms in on South Dowling Street. 
Street in Sydney and it will be operated by the Salvation Army. Um, that's very much for... It's really for the young people exiting care. So if you're in care, you're in care up until you're 18. And then when you come out of care, you have no network. I mean, I always say this. I say, look, in the end, a lot of youth homelessness is really around people not having any network. So if I had an argument with my mother and I was no longer able to live with her, you know, I would have gone to my aunt. My best friend's mum would have put me up, you know, forever, basically. Mm. So you've got that network that holds you. For young people coming out of care without the sort of deeper kinship relationships, that's not there. So um, we're building this home. It will be for sort of 16, 18 to 20, 21 to give to bridge people into that gap whereby mm. they can finish their education if they're going on to do tertiary education, if they're going to TAFE or university, whereby they can get a job. And they really key, they can get a rental history, you know, because they'll be there for two That's years. Right. So they can come out and they will pay a small amount of rent. So that when they come out, they've got a rental history. But also all those life skills that they'll have probably been either in a foster home or in a residential care home. Mm. In this one, they'll be in small units. So they'll have to manage their bills. They'll, um, they'll have to buy their own food. They'll have mm. to cook their own food. All of those life skills that, to be honest with you, the vast majority of us just take for granted, yeah, because you absorb them at home without really thinking about it, you know, mm -hmm. so you sort of come out at, you know, 2021 and you sort of understand how things work. Um, so, yeah, so look, it's going to be a really exciting project. Uh, Roberts Co. is going to be the builder. Uh, mm -hmm. We are fundraising. We're hopefully going to get the DA in in a, a couple of weeks' time and then we'll be fundraising for the rest of the year. And I think for the – I think there's quite a few good things. Apart from, so the Salvation Army will operate it. The Salvation Army in Sydney, which is one of the biggest operators in youth homelessness, they only have 36 bedrooms in Sydney. They've got 36 beds for youth homelessness in Sydney. So this is going to give them another 19 beds. Yeah, so you can already see the impact that that is going to have. Um, and also this will be longer stay. So they've got some crisis, you know, six mm. nights. They've got a bit of transitional six months they don't have this longer stay type that we're building for them so it'll give them a pathway for people coming out of crisis into transition into longer stay so we're really happy about that um, so it's, it's so it's really good for the city of sydney it's good for the young people in sydney it's good for the salvation army but it's good for the property industry too because this will be really flagship you know this will be something uh, it's on south darling street that you know if you're in the property industry you'll be able to drive past it and go hey look what we did you know mm. so um so it's a really exciting project but we've got good projects coming on stream in in Brisbane as well. We're hopefully right. going to be able to do a four-bedroomed house in Brisbane next year. Um, and we've got really good pipeline in um, Victoria as well. Victoria. when When's it due or hoping to start the construction for the South Darling? Or? Well, uh, how long is a piece of string? I mean, we're going to put in DA. <laughs> oh, DA could take a year, you know. So we right. will be building before the end of next year because okay. I think it will take us. You've got, to, you've got to leave a year to get DA and yeah. the rest of it. Um, I've seen you got lots of uh, well, lots of other programs happening, including uh, was it like a fitness challenge tour to Piff? Yeah, that's like, right. Uh, what what else is coming up for the rest? So of the coming year? up for the rest of the year. Um, so we're in our hard hat campaign at the moment. So hard hat campaign is when you generally you know do a barbecue on site or you do something in the office, mm -hmm. um, and th that one's good because it's flexible. You know, it's not time based by us. You can do that kind of activity any time of year actually, and we'll support you in that activity. Um, and you've got to remember for a lot of so sorry. How does that work? If I want, if I'm a builder, I want to do a barbecue on yeah, site. Yeah. I, I come to you and say, hey, I want to do a. Yeah. So we've got a how to run a barbecue kit. We've got all the collateral that you need in terms mm -hmm. of how you run a barbecue, and you're really doing it for your site. So this is the beautiful thing about things like that. Yeah. It's fundraising for us. So essentially, you'll put on a barbecue, and you'll ask people to put two. You know, you'll you'll put you'll put on a barbecue for your site, 
and he'll ask people to make a donation in t- return for a burger. Yes, it's very mm-hmm, simple. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, what a lot of organisations are looking for really are engagement opportunities for their staff. So it's really about thinking, you know, what can I do for my staff? What can I do for the people I'm working with that's going to be fun, but is also going to be community orientated and have a philanthropic outcome? So that's hard hat that's on at the moment. Um, we've got the Tour de Piff in Sydney, which is a massive cycling walk event. So we've got the Sleep Out coming up and we've got similar types of events happening um, in the other two states and as well. Obviously, Julax uh, Golf Day next year. Oh, uh, and <laughs> I was just about to lead into that, Hidad. And we've got the Julax Golf Day next year, which I think we've got a date in the calendar already. Yeah. Um, and look, that's a really good example of, of how, how to partner with people, you know. So for Julex, that's really great in terms of clients and in terms of exposure, but you're getting that really good philanthropic um, and community outcome at the same time. And we're really, really happy to support things like that. Yeah, so it's uh, it's basically a, a networking opportunity for builders, developers, subcontractors, and it's going to be at uh, Concord, uh, I think, Golf Club. Concord so, Golf Club. Yeah, so. that's, where we did it. that's where we did it this yes. year, wasn't it? Yeah, so and it was a great success this year. What do you think in general in terms of the market, construction market at the moment? You know, some people... I guess, uh, worried what's going to happen, interest rate going up and whatever, Dan. I mean, in terms of charity organization like you, is that something that is actually affecting you much? Like when you go in and ask from the builders to donate or not really? Look, um, I mean, we're like any charity. We, the Charities are always impacted by the broader economy. I mean, we mm. say charities are first to fall. And last to climb. You know what I mean? So <laughs> other the economy will fall and we'll fall first. So we're like, yeah. we, when we talk about paints, as soon as the bill doesn't have money, yeah. that's the last package. It's the last <laughs> package, that's right. So when the economy falls, charities fall first, yeah, because we're a discretionary spend for people. Yes. And then we pick up last because people not, need to feel that they can pay all their staff before they can make you know some mm. kind of charitable contribution. Um, look, the only thing I would say is this. So I've been here four years and obviously two years of that was COVID and the industry continued to support us. We didn't make as much money but, you know, I feel like the industry is very committed to the sustainability of the foundation. Yeah, right. So I was surprised. I mean, I hadn't worked here before and the COVID hit after I'd been working here for a year. And you thought, oh, my goodness, who's going to support us? But actually, I was really surprised by mm. how many organizations are like, yep, yeah, no, we, we can still support you this year. We might reduce our support to you. You know what I mean? But we're mm. still going to support you in some way, shape or form. And I think I think so. First of all, I think it's because the foundation is so unique. And also, we've been here for 25 years. You know, it's not like we're new. I mean, we, you know, the foundation has survived ups and downs in the past, you know, in terms economically. Um, so, you know, I think people, you know, have seen that longevity, longevity and want us to have the longevity. Um, but also, you know, property construction, it's all relationships. I mean, it's a real yeah. relationship built. And I guess one, one of the things comes to my mind is during this tough time, I guess, um, but there might be even more homeless use yeah. uh, because of all these issues that is happening. So they might even need more support, actually. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the vulnerable uh, uh, fall first and they come back last. You know, it's the same in terms yeah. of charities, you know. And and I guess, um, I'm wondering, I guess, are you, are you guys doing anything differently, I, I guess, in terms of um, managing your projects? Or it's, it's kind of, you know, you're relying on the relationship, good relationship that you have and... That, that they always support you regardless. Yeah, look, I, so we don't take any relationship for granted and I don't wish to sound like that we do, but in the end, it is all about relationships. So, you know, when COVID hit, I did what anyone would do. You know, I got on the phone to every single one of our partners and I said, look, what counts during this period is the relationship. Mm. If you can continue to support us, that's fantastic. If you can't, we still want the relationship. Right. And I think that kind of message really resonates with people and also enables you to have really honest conversations, you know, in terms of what level of support people can give you. And that's 
what we that's what we really like at the foundation. It's just that level of transparency. Mm-hmm. I mean, we know that construction is having a tough time. We know that the global economy is having enough time. I don't think we've peaked at inflation yet. I don't think we've peaked at interest rates yet. But I, I think, but a, it's not. Um, that's not just Australia. I mean, that's a global Everywhere, situation, yeah. you know. And um, I'm, 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 I'm optimistic enough to think, you know, we as an organisation, but as a country, as a society, we'll, we'll get ourselves through to the other side. And maybe, hopefully, you know, one of the things about COVID, and this was true for us as it was for other organisations, was that during that tough time, we did a lot of work on ourselves. You know what I mean? Like I sort of said to people, we don't want to come out of this the same shape we want to we went in, you know, we want to use this period to come out better than when we went in. You know, and I think that's a message for wider the wider society as well as we go through this period of economic contraction. You know, mm. how do we come out of this as, as a society in better shape than what we went in? Smarter and, you know, more efficient in certain ways. But do you want to share your hope for the future? I don't know, where, where do you see... I don't know, the, the industry goes or, or, the, or the homelessness, where do you want to see it? Like, obviously, you want to say no homeless. It's, it's, it's tough to say that. There are a few different things here. There is definitely a move in homelessness to what I call the end homelessness rather than manage homelessness campaign. Mm-hmm. So there's a, there's a strong criticism of the homelessness industry over the last 20, 30 years is that it fundamentally it manages homelessness. Like the figures don't really change in terms mm. of homelessness, you know, so they're, they're kind of managing it, they're not ending it. There's a real change, I think, to systems thinking, you know, how do we change the system so people don't become homeless? Mm. The homeless, the homelessness industry at the moment is geared around looking after homeless people. Yeah, it's not geared around making sure people don't become homeless. So there is a real shift in that. And we're gonna we're having a strategy session. It's a bit like sorry, Panadol for your pain rather than finding the root cause of it. Yeah, exactly. That's yeah. right. It's like keeping yourself fit and healthy rather than having to go to the hospital. You know yeah. what I mean? Like how do you how do you push it mm. further up the system, further up the chain, so you actually stop people becoming homeless? And there's quite a few initiatives that are starting to take that approach around. We just we want to stop people becoming homeless. You know the 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 visual is always of the bathtub, the overflowing bathtub, and what mm. they say is homelessness is like an overflowing bathtub, and when you come in and you see it overflowing, you start pulling people out of the bathtub. But really what you want to do is you want to turn the tap off. Yeah? <laughs> so how do we turn the tap off and stop people mm. becoming homeless? Um, and we're, we're definitely involved in that. We've got a strategy session coming up in um, October where I'm pushing us to start looking at funding some systems change projects. So I say, look, we will always spend 80% of our time building. Yeah, because I really think it's the important thing to do. But we have a, we have a 20% part of our time and our funds um, that we, we're looking to allocate to things that we think will stop people becoming homeless in the first place. Any, any I guess, um, findings that you might like to share? I mean, it's something that comes to my mind is a bit like education, but uh, I don't know. What, what are you? Um, look, education's absolutely part of it, but in the end, education's there. Yeah, it's not like it's not there. It exists. So really what you're talking about is how can you ensure people have better access to education? Yeah, so you could do that. Look, I think the program, one of the programs that we funded that I do point to is here in New South Wales, we funded a, we gave a small amount of funding to a program called the End Street Sleeping Collaboration. Mm-hmm. Now, the way that works, it's, it's from some methodology that came out of the States. And the methodology is this, when you're a rough sleeper, um, because homelessness services are fragmented, they're no longer delivered by government. So you've got, you know, Wesley Mission, you've got Salvation mm. Army, you've got all these different, and they're all dealing with front, they're all dealing with rough sleepers. 
So when you're a rough sleeper, John, every night you turn up at a different a different place, they don't know you, yeah? You don't, you're John. They ask you all about yourself again. You've told your story like 100 times in the last year, so you get a bit bored of telling your story and you're a bit like, yeah, whatever. And so this, and so the cycle continues. The End Street Sleeping Collaboration, what it does is it's built a database that is a common database between all frontline services in small areas. So it just looks... Just at the city of Sydney, for example, right. in the city of Sydney, there are 400 people that are considered to be rough sleepers. So they have built a database and it's called a by name list. So when John turns up at a service, they go, what's your name? John. Ah, oh, John, are you this John here? And on it, they start to see where John was last night and where he was the night beforehand. And they start mm. to see what kind of services he has been offered. So they can start to say, okay, John, I see we tried this two weeks ago. It didn't work. So we're not going to try that again. So you get much better frontline delivery of services but the key thing that happened in the states when they when they brought this methodology in is you start you ask every single rough sleeper that you come across you ask them the same questions and some of those questions are like so what happened six months ago you know what happened a year ago so you start to build up a map of how Mm -hmm. people become rough sleepers and then you start to share that data up the stream so you say listen when this person comes in and says they got divorced and you know fell over you know, those two things happened, mm. that person will be homeless in a year's time. So you need to divert them from the system. Wow. So in the States now, in some of the communities they're using it, they have eradicated rough sleeping. And they didn't eradicate rough sleeping by getting all the rough sleepers off the sleep. They got them off the street. They also stopped people becoming rough sleepers. Because otherwise, you're constantly pulling people out of the bathtub, mm. but you haven't actually turned off the taps. Using the power of data and, I guess, connecting it with the... Well, in some ways, using old human technology. I mean, that's about communication. You know, you've got all these different services. They're all competing because they're all competing for government funding. So they're all a bit like, I've got my database, you've got your database. So kind of breaking down those barriers and saying, let's just all use one database. You know, let's Mm. put all our data into that one database so that John gets really good frontline services. But but also we stop future Johns falling down. So there's, there's there's a lot of good systems change stuff happening in homelessness and other areas and some of it is not what you think so I hear what you say when you say education but in the end education hasn't proved you know do you know what I mean like it hasn't Mm. changed things in the way that new methodologies methodologies can change things so it's a really exciting time to work in social impact I like to get some data some people might think that youth homelessness is not big is that a big issue, though, in Australia? Because some people, when you go to the street, you don't see many of them. They might think it's not a big deal. So why would they care? So the figures in Australia are there are 110,000 people every night that are considered to not have safe and secure accommodation. And wow. 46,000 of those people are under 20. Five. Wow. Uh, per capita, Australia. So, I mean, you got to do it per capita because Australia is a small country, you know, 20 million people in comparison to, you know, like 70, 100 million. 100 million, exactly. So, you, so when you do per capita, Australia and New Zealand have the t- two of the worst uh, rates of homelessness in? in globally. Really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're not the worst, but you know what I mean? They're up One there of the worst, some of the probably worst. In the, probably definitely in the four, first world per countries. Ca- per capita, yes. Now, look, it's hard to judge because each country measures homelessness differently. You know what I mean? Some countries don't measure homelessness, you know, so it, it's hard to measure in what yeah. we know in terms of wow. countries that measure similarly to us. Um, but, but homelessness is a global problem. And yeah, you know, home, rough sleeping is the tip of the iceberg. Most homelessness is hidden. Yeah. yeah. And the funny thing is, you know, one thing I push back on people is I say, you think you don't know anyone that's homeless. So, but tell you what, if you think hard and you look, you will see there is someone 
in mm. your environment who does not have safe and secure accommodation. Do you know what what is the main cause of it? Is it just the parents have problems, divorce? Is so it the money? Youth, is it... youth homelessness. I mean, okay, so there's no one cause. Yeah, so it's not like I can point to one thing. That there's a combination of things. So, look, at its simplest, there's not enough social housing There's not enough low-income housing in Australia. Mm. Yeah. So you've got people who've got low incomes who've also got no housing. Yeah. So that that therefore in itself just creates its own stressful situation. Yeah. So that's kind of that's your kind of number one of your number yeah. one things. Um, and how we build more low-cost accommodation is really key because that problem is not going away. If you don't have enough low-cost accommodation for people, you just don't have enough homes for you just don't have mm. enough safe and secure homes for people. Um, for young people. Uh, look, I, I, I'm going to be careful. I don't want to be too broad brush, but generally what I say is no one leaves a safe and happy home. Yeah, like, you know, if, you, mm. if your home's happy and it's safe, you don't leave it. Yeah, I mean, mm. you, you might run away for a day or for a bit of an adventure, but, you know, you don't leave it and go and couch surf at your friends and not stop talking to your parents. So there's a lot of that conflict at home, but I would say that is exacerbated by the fact that people don't have access to good accommodations. So they're living in stressful situations. I mean, I think the new government trying to build more, um, uh, I guess, housing for homeless and yeah. low-income earners. Yeah. There's new. <laughs> there's a there's a new scheme on built to rent built coming to up rent. too. Yeah. So, yeah. So um, a lot of builders initially didn't pick it up, but I think slowly gets picked up. Yeah. Well. I, yeah, I agree. Look, build to rent is is not what I'd call social housing, though. To yeah. be honest with you, build to rent is slightly more. If you look at the difference between. Yeah. So social housing, we generally say you want to be spending no more than 30% of your income on the house. Yeah. Mm. And so it's got it. If your income's only so much, you only want to spend 30%. Affordable housing is 80% of market rate. So built to rent fits more into that affordable housing, which yeah. is about your key workers, your nurses, your correct that you want to sit there. It, so it doesn't impact on social housing. It doesn't fix the problem. It doesn't fix the problem at all. Yeah. And people, I get it. People like, got built to rent. I go, yeah, that's great. But that's, that's not really, that's not what social housing is about. Mm. You know, the role, you know, in, in the end, in terms of increasing social housing, there's a role for all of us. I mean, I think it's fair to say that asking government to fund all of it, it's not going to happen. Yeah. Mm. Government's role really is to create the environment by which private investment will come into social housing. So how do you set up the kind of schemes that make private investment, in particular super funds, you know, make them kind of say, yep, look, I will invest in social housing. It's not going to give me the best rates of return, but it's going to give me a nice, stable, low rate of return, which just makes part of my portfolio, if you know what I mean. Mm. I mean, government has to put some funding in, I agree, but it also has to, you know, government's key role, as I always say, is actually about policy and frameworks so that you encourage the rest of the market to do what's right in a way that gives the rest of the market an outcome. And that framework doesn't exist at the moment, and it doesn't exist at the moment because... In Australia, there is no national plan for homelessness. There is no federal leadership on homelessness. So right. homelessness is a fragmented state-by-state market with each state government trying different things, with each, you know, sort of fragmented charity like ourselves all trying to figure out what it is we should do. And mm. there's been a complete lack of leadership from the federal government to create what I call the firmament, you know, like mm. the firmament whereby you as an operator in the homelessness sector go, oh, I, I fit there, you know, you know, this is the best thing that we should do. And also backing of lots of research that says to people, this is a useless thing to do in homelessness. Don't do it. You know what I mean? <laughs> Because there's a lot of energy that is misapplied when you look at social problems, which is why you get to the situation where the homelessness industry for the last 20, 30 years has managed homelessness, but it has mm. not ended homelessness nor reduced homelessness. 
Wow. <laughs> Get very uh, passionate about this, Adad. <laughs> no, that's that's absolutely great. I mean, I hope uh, there's more support from the government. I'm not uh, that aware as you to know where the problem is, but um, I'm sure people listen to this and reach out to you to ask for help and at least get experience to not spend their money or time on something that is useless. But I just wanted to get your some of the interest, to be honest, outside work. I know you're busy um, working uh, at PIF and trying to raise money for homeless youth. I don't know, weekends. What is it, uh, something that you like to do? So uh, one thing we did recently um, is my husband, I and my kids in, took all of January off and we swam every single ocean pool on the New South Wales coast. <laughs> so we swam 30 ocean pools. What? 60 ocean pools in 28 days. Uh, Was that can, a challenge? Uh, we set ourselves the challenge. I love ocean pools. And so I said, let's do all of them. So we drove up to Yamba and did all the pools. And then we did all the Sydney pools. And then we drove all the way down to Eden. And we did all the pools on the way down wow. to Eden. And we, we blogged, so oceanpooling.com. Um, and you rate them. You talked about No, we didn't rate them, actually. And everyone said that to me. They said, what's your favorite pool? And I always had the same answer. The one in front of me is my favorite pool. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they're all, they're, you know, like, they're, you know, there's this constant feeling we have to compare everything. They're all beautiful in their own way. You know, they've all got something going for them. It depends on your mood, the time, the tide, the moon, the whole, you know, kit and caboodle. Um, but that was great. So, so we blogged, uh, we took photos, we took drone footage, and we just um, uh, did that journey. And then currently, my husband and I, we live close to the Ritz in Randwick, and the mm. Ritz is doing a uh, sort of mini festival called 85 for 85. So it is showing um, one film uh, from 85 days in a row. So it's doing a little, you know, there's one film for 85 days in a row, one from each year that it's been around. So they started in 1937. And they'll go all the way up to 2022. And uh, my husband and I are going to as many of them as possible. So last night, we watched The Good, The Bad and The Ugly. <laughs> Big screen, remastered. <laughs> nice. Yeah, it was great. It was amazing. Uh, what was the website again? About the pool website? Oceanpooling.com. I'm going to definitely check that. Check my, it out. My partner, she loves to swim in those uh, ocean pools. So, oh, really? Where do you live? I live in Rockdale, Brighton the Sands. Oh right, okay. Pro- uh, past Cronulla. Yes. Yeah, right. That's okay. where it is. So there's four pools in Cronulla, yes. and the last pool, Park Ocean Pool, is a beautiful pool. Yes, I I agree with you. We go there quite often, yeah. actually. Uh, I mean, it's a bit chilly still now to go to water, um, but soon. Yeah. Some people still do it, I guess. But um, so other than movies, doing activities, all that, do you get time to? I don't know, still read? I must say, I read and meditate every morning. So wow. I get up at half five and I have a cup of coffee, black, with a piece of toast with butter and marmalade. It's like the perfect combination. And then I read for about 20 minutes and then I meditate for 20 minutes. So wow. I read every day. There you go. That's a quite a cool routine. Um, is um, is there any particular subject you read that you want to share? Or? Uh, I generally read about philosophy right. and... Uh, how to how to live basically so I, live. i'm reading quite an obscure german philosopher at the moment martin buber right. and his book um i and thou you call alchemist a philosophy book i don't know some a little people... bit yeah it's a, it's a how to live book you know what i mean i mean yeah. philosophers philosophy is really about how to live yeah like yes. how should humans live i mean this is a big question of everyone's life how, how to live how what's to a, live what's the purpose of life what's really what's the purpose of life what yeah, are we here yeah. for what do you do you have an answer for it yet I think everyone's journey is their own, you know, so I don't think there is an answer. I, mm. I, think, I think the job of, um, of the human 
is, you know, the, you know, the question is um, not what do you ask of life, but what does life ask of you? You know what I mean? So, you know, what does life ask of you? What are your skills? Where do you fit? I mean, I, I do think there are some basic things we should ascribe to, like leave everything in a better better way than you found it from your kitchen if you're just working, you know what I mean? Like to yeah. to your life, to your environment. I mean, if everybody just left left their environment, their life, tiny little bit better than how they find it. It doesn't have to be much, just a mm. tiny, tiny little bit better. That would be amazing. Like yeah, try to imagine. Compounding effect, eh? Nine billion, you know, so 7.9 billion people all going, you know what, I'm just going to leave this Tiny, a millimeter better, like just a speck. You know, to, as I was saying, don't have to be huge. But if everybody did that, uh, we'd live in a very different world. Right. Okay. Um, well, would you like to share something with the audience that I haven't asked you? You know, look, I'm 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 in a, I'm a reasonably optimistic person. You know what sure. I mean? Like, I, I think that. Um, uh, you generally think things are going to work out okay. Like I know mm. the world is a bit crazy at the moment. Let's not pretend, you know. Yes. But um, you know, I, I generally say, look, um, you know, it's like when we had when COVID was still here. I know, but you know, when it first started, I used to say to people, look, humans are the most successful virus this planet has ever seen. <laughs> always have been, always will be. <laughs> you know. So I think humans are endlessly adaptable, and if yes. they want to, can solve any problem. I think the question is whether you want to or not, and you know how, mm. how you solve problems. Yeah, there's people that they find problems for every solution and there's vice versa, people mm. that they like to find solutions for every problem yeah. too. So um, how you see it, I guess, yeah. is, your, is, the, is the way you see life. Some people are happy with just a, I don't know, small car. Some people are not happy with a mm. Lambo yeah, or a I Ferrari. Know. I know. It never ends. I and know. Part of it comes back to the way, uh, I guess, society work. We want more. Well, yeah. Everyone wants more. Everyone wants more. I mean, look, I, I'm a bit, I, I am anti-stuff. I really am. Mm. Like, I'm anti-stuff, you know. I just think stuff, stuff doesn't think about you. Stuff doesn't care about you. Mm. Yeah, stuff just slows you down. You know, the more stuff you have, the more time you have to look after it, to clean it, to insure it, all of this kind of stuff. I, you know, I think stuff is just, yeah, I mean. We come to this world with nothing and we go out of it with nothing. But we accumulate a lot of stuff along the, the way. In the middle. You know, it's like, stop <laughs> buying so much stuff, everyone. Like, you go into people's houses, all this stuff, you know, it's like, oh, my God. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. No, fantastic, Kate. I mean, really enjoyed talking to you. Pleasure, Hudad. Thank you very much for coming down to our Orange. I do appreciate it. And can I just remind everyone listening that Dulux is an amazing partner of the Property Industry <laughs> Foundation. And it's been a delight to be with Hudad for this last hour. Thanks, Kate. Thanks a lot. See you next time, everyone. Cheers. Ciao. I hope you enjoyed this episode. See you next time. Mm-hmm.